Let us now stand as we come uh, to our sermon text this morning, which comes to us uh, for uh, the last uh, Sunday uh, from the, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Of course, the last Sunday for right now, but uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Let us stand as we read uh, from uh, verses 50 through 58. Again, coming to us from this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. But all I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks again for these words of Holy Scripture. And God, we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would apply these words unto our hearts and that we might live with more light and understanding. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. One of the more well-known parables of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is especially applicable to this passage, is when Jesus talks about the way in which you cannot put a new patch on old trousers. Remember there how he describes what will happen if you put a new patch on old trousers. Well, when they're washed, the, 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 the new patch will rip away from the old trousers. And what was the point that Jesus was making in that parable? Well, one of the points that Jesus was making there was that the entirety of the garment needs to be changed. And what we see Paul doing in 1 Corinthians 15 is likewise letting us know that the problem with humanity is not partial. The salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ is not a part of our identity. It's not as if sin is merely kind of like a broken leg and what needs done is just the resetting of the bone and then a cast and then after a few months all things are back to normal. But the reality of the human position is that we are dead in sin. That we have no hope within ourselves that we are incapable of fixing the problem. And Paul gets to that towards the end of this passage when he talks about the power of the law. 
In verse 30, uh, 56, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Now Paul there is not saying that the law is sin. It's not as if the law of God causes us to sin. What does the law of God do but prick the conscience of man? The law of God reminds the sinner of what he is doing and causes the rebellious sinner to continue in that rebellion. That's one of the things that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 as he's talking about his former life. As he transitions uh, from talking about his former life uh, as an unredeemed sinner to his new life as a redeemed sinner, he talks about how when the law appeared, what happened to him? When the law appeared, I died. Because every time the law came into his mind and in his heart, he was reminded of his inability to keep the law. That no matter how hard he tried, he was incapable of keeping the law perfectly. And in Paul's mind as a Jew, that was the only way that he was going to gain entrance to heaven was through a perfect obedience to the law. Now, he had in his own mind a means through which to receive atonement for sin. And so he was faithful to attend to the Old Testament economy. He went to the temple on the days uh, in which he was supposed to. He was faithful under the commands of what he understood the Old Testament law to be. But what we hear from Paul in Romans 7 is that every time he read the law of God, he was reminded of how he had failed to keep the law. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 is bringing this up again to help the Corinthian church understand the nature of what has taken place in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul here, again, is not doing away with the law. He's not saying that the Old Testament economy failed in what it was set up to do. For what the Old Testament economy was set up to do was to point the Israelite to the Messiah. To point the Israelite to the fact that they could not save themselves. That they did not have the ability to keep the law perfectly. And so, as Jesus Christ is teaching the disciples, you often hear the Pharisees claiming that Jesus is telling the people that sinning is okay. That it's okay to transgress the law. It's okay to violate the standards upon which the fathers have built their faith. But the whole point that Jesus has, especially if you look there in the Sermon on the Mount uh, after the Beatitudes in in Matthew chapter 5, He says there that what has He come to do? He has come to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. Because the problem that the Pharisees had and that Paul had before he came to faith is they misunderstood the role of the law. They misunderstood the point 
of the Old Testament ceremonies. That each one of these ceremonies, whether it be the Day of Atonement, whether it be Passover, whether it be Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, each one of these uh, elements was given by the Lord our God to a people under age to tutor them, to bring them to Christ. That's one of the points Paul makes in Galatians chapter 2. Again, as the law had been given in the Old Covenant, as it had been given to the people of the Old Covenant, Jesus Christ, who has now come and been raised from the dead, has put away those ceremonial laws. Because they're no longer necessary, because Jesus Christ is present. That's one of the things Paul will go in depth into in the book of Hebrews. That as long as the people are looking for their salvation in the obedience to the law, they will continue to do what it says here in verse 56. That they will feel the sting of death. They will feel the strength of sin. And so Paul here, as he closes out uh, this 15th chapter, as he has spent all of this time defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he doesn't want the Corinthian church to miss the bigger picture. He doesn't want them to forget about the reason for the resurrection. Because it's, it's, it's all in good uh, Christian faith to rest and trust in the resurrection. To believe that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave. That it was not an appearance, that it was not a, a kind of a trick that the angels played on the women, but that Jesus Christ really and truly was raised from the dead. And that as believers in Jesus Christ, our promise is that we will be raised from the dead. Again, Paul, as he closes out this chapter, wants the Corinthians to think in the future about how this teaching will affect their lives going forward. And so that's why at the end here he talks about uh, the uh, sting and the victory and the strength and, and these particular subjects. Because as long as their faith is in uh, this one event... As long as their faith is in this one particular aspect of the work of Christ, then they will continue to be what He calls them at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Remember there in, in the first couple of chapters, He talks about milk and meat. And what's His great complaint about the Corinthian church? That, that they are still drinking their mother's milk. That they are not able yet to take in the meat of the Word. And of course, we, we see that illustration and it makes good sense to us. You know, if a child is still uh, drinking his mother's milk at age 12 and he hasn't started eating a regular food, uh, is that good for the child? Well, of course it's not good for the child. What does a child need? Again, a child cannot subsist on its mother's milk forever. It needs to be able to take in the solid foods. And the Corinthian church has kind of remained in this infant stage of faith. And one of the reasons for that is, is because they haven't moved out of that initial stage of their Christian faith. 
And most of that has been an unwillingness to engage with the law of God. Again, they have been comfortable in in, in thinking upon uh, the aspects of the gospel truth without thinking about how the gospel applies to their lives. And that's why they are engaged in so many egregious sins in Corinth. It's one of the problems uh, that is not only plaguing Corinth, uh, but uh, plagues several of the churches that are named in uh, the book of Revelation. You know, they have this, this kind of uh, you know, baby faith and have not moved into a mature faith. Again, that's why they have no problem with this man who is, who is uh, sleeping with his mother-in-law. Because they look at him and say, well, he testifies of Jesus Christ. He, he says he believes in the resurrection. What else is needed? And Paul here again at the end of 15 is saying, look, If you don't understand the nature of sin, understand the nature of what has happened in the Gospel, then all the testimonies of your lips will show yourselves to be hypocrites. And that's really what Paul is calling them in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Again, they have a faith which doesn't go any further than their lips. It has had no effect on their lives. This is why here at this closing section in verse 50, he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Because again, what is flesh and blood in the eyes of the people here? Again, it's worthwhile to think about how Paul uses this Phrase In Galatians chapter 1, uh, Paul uses it and he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Now what Paul means there is he didn't talk to men about it. You know, these things were revealed to him from above. One of the ways in which we can understand this more so is the way Paul uses it in Hebrews chapter 2. He says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Again, flesh and blood is used there once more to talk about the human being and the human way of doing things. And what does the Christian need? Again, the Christian needs a spiritual rebirth. You know, when Jesus Christ is, is speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, what's the problem with Nicodemus' thinking? Nicodemus hears this, this requirement to be born again, and he thinks in flesh and blood. He thinks, how... Am I going to go back in my mother's womb and be born again? Jesus, that's, that's impossible. And Jesus there, again, is, is merciful to Nicodemus. And He continues to teach him and He continues to show him that what's necessary for salvation, what's necessary for the Christian life, is that spiritual rebirth. That we are made new creatures in the eyes of God. Again, our flesh and blood doesn't change when we become believers in Christ, right? We we don't cease bleeding. 
Right? We don't cease dying. We don't cease uh, the effects of sin. But what changes in us? Well, Paul tells us there in Hebrew or in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit in corruption. Again, that's his whole point there. Is that what's happened to us is that we who were corrupted by sin have been made incorruptible by the gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Again, that's an important part of understanding our salvation. It's not just that our sins have been paid for, but that we have received something from Jesus Christ that He earned through His life. You know, so the, the catechism will talk about this as the double imputation. That our sins were imputed to Christ and that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Now, that, that word, um, you know, that it's one of those big words that, that needs explaining. You know, the, the Roman Catholics believe that grace is infused into you. Now, you know, those who have gone through infusion can perfectly understand what that illustration is. You know, when, when you have a blood infusion, you have good blood and it's put into you. And the idea is that the good blood will either cleanse or move out the bad blood. And so, when you go to Mass, for example, and you take uh, the Lord's Supper and, and you take the Lord's body and blood into you, what's really happening is, is that the grace that is in those elements is pushing out the sin that is within you. Now, when we think about that, what does it mean that that's not how we're saved? Right? We're, we don't have an infusion of God's grace. Right? We're, we're not kind of made clean that way. What happens to us in imputation is that we are declared holy in the eyes of God the Father through the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, that's one of the reasons why when we talk about justification, we always use the courtroom scene. Right? That Jesus Christ there you know, is, is interceding on our behalf with God the Father who's the judge. And uh, we are declared righteous by the judge. And not only are we declared righteous, but we are given something by the judge that belongs to Jesus Christ. And so when we hear the language of Paul here as he says that corruption uh, does not inherit incorruption... Again, it's not that we are merely washed, but that we are wholly changed. We are now made incorruptible. And if we're incorruptible, what does that mean for our salvation? It means that we who have been wholly changed will not change back into corruption. You know, our salvation is not one of these things that we kind of walk in and out of. Again, we're not saved multiple times in our lives. You know, we don't kind of step into the house of God, then get kicked out of the house of God, and then come back in the house of God, and then get kicked out again. And the only way you get to heaven is if you happen to be in the house of God when you breathe your last breath. Again, what kind of assurance is there in that kind of faith? Paul here is making it clear that not only is our salvation perfect, because it's the gift of God, we can know 
through the testimony of Christ that we are no longer uh, you know, uh, under the power of sin. We no longer are under the strength of sin, but we are now under the strength of the Lord our God. And of course, this isn't one of these things that's a New Testament idea. One of, uh, one of our favorite stories uh, that we especially uh, like to use in Bible school and things like that is the story of uh, Ezekiel and the dry bones. And, and, and many of us, of course, have sang the song, and I won't try and sing it this morning for you, but you know, we know the words of that song, right? That you know, in the valley of the dry bones, there, uh, Ezekiel walks up and he looks down and he just sees this pile of bones. And what does he see happen while he is being told by God to preach to these bones? As he's watching the bones take on flesh. And then the flesh gets put on the bones. And, and, and while the flesh is going to be put on the bones, the bones come together. And eventually, what do we see happen? We see God breathe upon these new creatures. And what do these new creatures do? They come alive. And how much work did Ezekiel put into this? Did Ezekiel go down into the, uh, into the, into the valley and, and grab the hamstring and put it in the right place? Did, did he go down there and, and then put the knee bone in the proper place? No, what we see Ezekiel do is that he is preaching the Word of God to these bones. And God is putting these bones together. He is the one who is active in making new creatures out of these dry bones. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 is, is declaring to the Corinthian church the nature not only of their salvation, but why they need to grow up. Why they need to go from those who are merely uh, drinking of their mother's milk to understanding the full orb nature of what they have received through the resurrection of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, he says there, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? You know, this, this reminder here of what is going to take place in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's one of the reasons why Paul is closing on this point. Is Again, he wants the people to think forward. He wants the people to think about what is going to happen. That they are not kind of living lives uh, that are outside of the providential plan of God. That God not only has all things under His sovereign hand, but that even the end of the world is under His control. We hear a witness in this passage of the parables of Jesus covering the same period of history. You think of the parable of the virgins and what did the good virgins do? 
right? They were, they, were, they were cutting their wicks, right? They were preparing for the coming of the bridegroom. And what happened to those who, who weren't uh, preparing, who weren't uh, you know, kind of awaiting the coming of the bridegroom? Well, He comes and they don't, they don't, they're, they're not ready. They don't have what they need. And that, that parable here is perfectly applied to what Paul is saying about the Christian life. Again, to our understanding of the victory that we see here, again, it first of all comes to us from the fact that our salvation is God-given. And it also comes from the fact that we are called to live in light of that God-given salvation. And we are to hear what he says there in the closing verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Again, this is the call that we see here to the Corinthian church and to Bethany on this Lord's Day. This is how we are to live in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, we're not to live in thinking upon the one aspect of the resurrection, but that we are to live as resurrected beings who have been made new creatures in Jesus Christ, who love the commandments of the Lord our God, and are constantly and continually living in the light of these things by abounding in the work of the Lord. Because again, what is the reasoning Paul gives for this? Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, is your labor in vain if it's outside the Lord? Of course, that's the the, the kind of constant teaching of Scripture. Again, what what does the preacher say at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And why is it vanity? Because it's worth nothing in the providential plan of God. It has no purpose in glorifying the Lord our God. But what does our obedience to the moral law, to the Ten Commandments, uh, to the words that God has given to us, show forth about our understanding of this resurrection life? It shows forth that we are resting in the labor that God has given to each one of us. That we are resting in the labor that Christ has completed in us. And that we are resting in the future promise of the Lord our God. That in the day of the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead be raised incorruptible. And we've mentioned this several times that we spent time in this particular uh, chapter. But one of the things that we believe as Christians is that when we are raised from the dead, we will have these very bodies that we have right now. And one of the, uh, you know, it's always done with, with good intention, but one of, the, one of the things you'll hear at funerals every now and then is, you know, as the casket is in front, you'll hear somebody say something like, well, you know, uh, Fred is not here, right? Fred's in heaven. But the reality is, Fred is there, right? Fred is present with us. The body that we have is our body. And it will forever be our body. And that when the Lord Jesus comes again, you know, this graveyard that is next to us will give up her dead. Every grave in that graveyard will see a body rise out of the ground. It's one of the reasons why, of course, Christians have for centuries buried their dead. 
It's a testimony to our hope in the resurrection. That this, this body that we have is going to be raised in incorruption. This body that we have has been given to us by the Lord our God to glorify Him. And so this language that Paul closes with here of, of my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, even thinks about the work that we do in death. You know, one of the things we, we always strive to do, of course, is to die well. And what's one of the ways that we can die well? It's by showing forth our faith and trust in the resurrection of the dead. Of knowing that when our bodies cease to breathe, that we go into the presence of the Lord, and that we know that that's not the end. Not only is that not the end, it's, it's merely the beginning of eternity for the believer. Because again, this life we live here today is but a whisper. It's gone in a moment. But what do we have here in what Paul says? Again, a reminder of the perfection of the salvation and the redemption that we have received in Jesus Christ and the knowledge that as we live this life, God has given to us that all things are under His sovereign command, that all things are under His sovereign control, and that we can live this life knowing the goodness and the love and the grace and the blessing that awaits us in the heavenly places. And so brothers and sisters, as we go out from this place this day, as we go out into a world to deny Christ crucified, again, let us remember what Paul has to say to us here. That we who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we who are no longer uh, that man or woman living in that former manner of life have been given a new life in Jesus Christ. And that we who know the promise of the resurrection, who know that death has no power over us, that even in death we show forth the Lord's glory and the promise that is to come. And let us go forth in this place in the confidence of the reality of what God has done for His people. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father.